0: I hope you guys have had a great week. If uh, you are new to Harvest or I've not had a chance to get to meet you yet, my name is Andy Hoffman. I am the pastor of students and young adults here at Harvest. And so uh, this morning we're going to continue on where we started last week with what Pastor Brett started off on, and that's walking through a series we call Broken Heroes, walking through uh, portraits and pictures of the judges of the book of Judges. So um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Judges chapter 3. And if you uh, don't have a Bible but you you need one, you want to follow along, just go ahead and put your hand up in the air. We have ushers coming down the aisle. They'd love to get a Bible in your hand so you know that the stories and the accounts that I'm going to be talking about today are not my words. They're not made up, especially the account of Ehud, which is going to be interesting. Um, so go ahead and, uh, and follow along with, and, and with the Bible. So last week, we started uh, our study through, through the book of Judges. So, so for me, Judges is a, is a very frustrating book, um, but uh, it's a purposeful reminder of God and God's character, Right? It's a book that ultimately points us to to how weak we are and and how great our our God is. It's a book of of how evil and self absorbed mankind is and how patient and and responsive our God is. And it's a book about God showing us all that we need to know about Him. It's a book that, that shows us and points us to the true character of God. Now, we also see a lot of faults of Israel in the book. So here's, here's the question that we're going to start talking about. Here's a question for you. You can raise your hand with me if you want. Um, does anyone in here have faults? For you who didn't put your hand up, you're lying. <laughs> or someone's not been honest enough with you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, look, I have plenty of faults, right? Uh, but I have two, two faults that can be very, very glaring. One is uh, my procrastination. Anybody? All right. All right. One is my procrastination? Uh, and, and my other one is leaving jobs unfinished. Anybody else with me on that one? That one? Oh, good. I'm not alone. All right. Great. Look, so my, my two glaring problems. Now I have plenty of faults, right? But my two ones, my glaring ones that have been pointed out by other people and been pointing out by myself and other people right, is, is my procrastination and the fact that I leave jobs unfinished. So my excuses for procrastination are, are that, that I work better under pressure, which I do and which I can. All right. But often, look, I find it's because other things begin to occupy my time, like binge-watching shows, right? Or finding other menial projects that really don't have anything to do with what I'm trying to do, but that really needs to get done now, right? Or uh, I like to sleep, so then I get tired, and then I go to bed, right? So the problem is this. Um, I live by the procrastinator's mantra is, why do today what I can do tomorrow, maybe, right? And that's what I, I live by, um, but the, so that's the one side of it, procrastination. And the other side of that, which kind of maybe goes hand-in-hand, hand, I'm not sure, um, is my, my half-unfinished projects, right? Sometimes I'll get bored about halfway through, um, or, or i get sidetracked or, or start another project. Something similarly very similar to my procrastination, right? Or uh, there's a good game on, right? Like today at 11 o'clock, all right? But I'm not going to talk about that game. Um, right there's a good game on or or again i i get tired and there's plenty there's plenty of reasons um but here's the problem with that procrastination is one thing because then you get put under pressure and then i have to you know like in the next two weeks i have to write a 20-page research paper about church conflict for my class it's coming up in july go me procrastination 101 right but the other part of this um is that the half-done projects pretty soon a year goes by or a a half a year goes by and i have these half-done projects cluttered everywhere. Now, thankfully, I'm renting right now, not a homeowner, so those are few and far between at the moment, but definitely when I'm a homeowner, those things pile up, and and, and then I realize, and and when I walk by that that half-done project, and a a year later, I walk by, and I'm reminded that on that project in particular, I have failed, it's halfway done. It's not completed. I started out well. I started out strong, but I didn't see it through to completion. And it becomes a reminder of what I started in such great fervor, but at the, at the moment, it sits at a, as, at a monument of the idol to me. Right? It sits as a monument to the idol, and luckily, this doesn't define us. Luckily, those little those faults and those character flaws and all those things, they don't define us, but, but we need to find motivation to finish the project eventually, right? And this is the moment where Israel sits. This is the moment where Israel sits. They started the conquest and clearing out the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. They were led by Joshua. They started doing what they needed to be done. They started out being obedient to God, but then pretty soon they stopped doing what they needed to be doing, and they started taking a half measure. And that half measure was that the Israelites no longer conquered the Canaanites, but they subdued them. And they made them slaves for them. They took a half measure, and it was a half obedience to God. Now, we know a half obedience is no obedience at all. So they became disobedient to God for whatever reason we might not know, but for the fact that they're humans and they become disobedient to God very, very quickly. But they took this half measure. They didn't drive these people out of the land that God had promised them. Then Joshua died and then the disobedience set in even more and Israel began to worship the the Baals and the other idols and God did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. Now, if you look at last week, chapters one and two, there's a shift between Israel driving out the inhabitants of the land, to God no longer driving out the inhabitants of the land. Now, there's a huge shift there, right? We don't have time to really dive into that this morning, but here's the thing. It goes from Israel saying we're going to drive them out to being disobedient to God saying, I will no longer drive them out. And so the question becomes this, how often do we want to take credit for even God's work going, well, it was me driving them out, and God's like, actually, it was me, but since you no longer want to, I'm not going to. And we've begun to take, take this, this credit for what God is actually doing. And this is what Israel begins to do. They, they sit there and they say, well, yeah, God, we're going to subdue. And now, wait, wait a minute, this, this path of di- disobedience leads us even further and further and further into more disobedience. And so we're going to pick up today, Judges. Uh, we're going to read uh, chapter 3. We're just going to read verse 1 through 6 first. With the whole chapter, I'm probably not going to read the entire chapter. I might read the entire chapter, depends on how I'm feeling at the end, right? But we'll, we'll figure this out. But look, it says this, with that setup. Chapter three, verse one says this, and this will be on the screen for you. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon. From Mount Bel Hermon as far as Lebohamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commands of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and their daughters. Look, verse 6, look at this. And their daughters, the daughters of Israel, and their daughters took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Now we see the, the glaring problem already beginning to happen. See, what happens is when we take a half measure in following God, we end up becoming in a place of disobedience, which leads us to even further disobedience. See, God left the, the inhabitants so that they, that they would know warfare. And this is distinctively different from the book of Joshua, when, when God told Israel not to fight, but in fact, Let me show you my power and and instead of fighting, walk around the walls of Jericho seven times and then give a mighty shout with the trumpet and the walls will fall down and I will hand you that city. And now we see a shift from this. We see a shift from just do it on my own power to now you're going to have to fight. Now you're going to be pushing them out. And so we see the shift between God telling Israel not to fight, but to walk around the walls and to trust him. And now we see God allowing the inhabitants and the need to fight because they would not follow him. We see the dramatic shift here. And there's there's an important note here, and this is not my thoughts. This is a commentator that I was looking at about these things. But it says this, one commentator indicates in looking at the Hebrew, the words in Hebrew about going off into battle, verses 1 through 3, it says God's concern was not that Israel would learn war for war's sake. He wasn't just setting them up just to teach them how to be brutal and warish. But to learn about the significance of this war that Israel had. To learn about the fullness of dwelling peacefully in the promised land that God has promised them. It's about learning war for, for this war. That they entered the land of of Canaan and as God's covenant people with a mandate to drive the inhabitants of land and they, and they took a half measure and, and so we see that the continued presence of other peoples in the land shows that Israel was failing the test by God to accept them solely as Lord. Now here's the question that comes directly back to us. How often do we do the same thing? How often in our obedience to God do we take a half measure and how often does that half measure lead us into a place of disobedience and how long does that disobedience lead us even further into further disobedience and further disobedience and further disobedience and pretty much we get to a place where we see God way over there and we're way over here and we're like, I was once there and now I'm here and now I don't know how to get back to there. And that's where Israel begins to look, and they're saying, Look, we're so far gone. I mean, we just, and that's our own hearts. We say, Well, we're so far gone from God, like, He's not going to want us back. He's not going to welcome us back. So I'm going to keep on walking down this path. I'm going to keep on walking down this path of disobedience. See, Israel, again, they didn't drive the people. As they were commanded, but God's saying, "I'm going to test them. The, the, the new, we had to test the new generation, that the new generation might learn to fight the wars in God's strength, because it was the previous generation who failed to obey God. And God's new, now test the, the new generation to see if they would follow Him. So here is the test for Israel: Will Israel obey God's commands? Will Israel obey God's commands? And we start Judges chapter three. We're like, maybe, maybe they'll, maybe they'll smarten up, man. Maybe they'll find some like inner courage and strength, and maybe, maybe they'll, maybe, maybe they'll see like all the enemies that that potentially could be against them, and and maybe they'll call upon the strength of the Lord that that they would get their senses knocked right. And then we we read verse six, and their daughters. They took to themselves for wives and their own daughters. They gave to their sons that they served their gods. There was no fight. This was a slaughter. There was no battle here. It was just like Israel saying, we see all the enemies. There's no way we can defeat them. There's no way we can conquer. God, what were you thinking? We can't defeat that. What are you doing? You know what? You know what we'll do? We'll intermarry. You know what we'll do? We'll do these things. And here's the thing. The inhabitants verse four, we're left to test and determine Israel's commitment to the Lord, and the Lord still does us to this day. He tests us to determine where our hearts truly lie, with him or against Him. With him or with the world, our, our half-hearted disobedience takes us down paths of sin. And the path is dangerous. It creates bondage, not freedom. And the world is going to promise you, the enemy is going to promise you, the culture is going to promise you, if you would just accept this or view this or think this way, then this will be freedom and you'll be just, oh, you won't be that narrow-minded bigot anymore. And that's not true because your bondage that you latch yourself to does not equate to freedom. It is God making clear we are people who believe these scriptures and we believe that it is only through God and through the obedience of God that we will find true freedom. And we understand that. And we see verse 5 and, and verse 6 that they lived among the other nations. They became like the other nations. So here's the result of the test they failed. And they failed in the oh, worst kind of ways. How did they fail? Three ways. They lived with, not exterminated, the people of the land. Now, I know in that way, we talk about, oh, God is such an evil, ruthless, dictator that he would tell these people of israel to go and and murder all those innocent people let's stop there when we say innocent with anybody look and and at the time sometimes we can look at these old testament accounts and we can bulk a little bit and we can say why would he do that and the reality is this because god promised israel something but israel had to trust in him And so I can't give you the the rest of the the mode behind why God tells them to do something, because I'm not God, and I'm looking at a finite view of this word. And so so that was the first thing. That's how they failed. They lived with, they they didn't drive the people out of the land. Here's the second thing. They intermarried with the Canaanites, they looked at them and said, Well, we can't defeat them, so if we can't beat them, we're going to join them. And then that's how this became. And here's the third thing. Not only, not only did they live with them, not only did they intermarry with them, but they forsook their own God. They began to worship other gods, They began to serve the other gods of the land. And we look at this church and we we go we balk at that and we go, like, Israel, wake up. Israel, get smart, but look, this list is us. Right? And I'm not talking like in the literal sense, like hopefully you're not out in your field like trying to kill people to get off your land. That's weird and that's illegal. Don't do that. All right? You know, and even in, like, these things are not literal things except for the last one. But how often do our hearts flee from the very thing that God has told us to do? How often do we accept the junk of the culture rather than actually fighting against it? How often do we, do we not be like Israel and how often do we be like the people who are going to pursue Christ? See, things from this moment, they, they, don't, they don't get much better at this point. They actually go from bad to worse. The initial obedience to God, or disobedience to God, leads to a larger pathway to disobedience. That's what we see. And so Israel fails to do the job. They drive to, to drive the inhabitants from the land, and there, here's this tension that arises. And here's the tension that arises. God has promised to deliver his people, and we know. That God's character is perfect, and we know that God is always faithful. So we know that God still needs to finish this job, right? God has promised to deliver his people, but he demands obedience. With you and I, there's sin in our life, and a lot of that sin would be eradicated in simple obedience to Christ. Now, does that mean that you wouldn't struggle with it? Absolutely not. But that means that you would have ultimate victory in it and over it. We need to give those things to Christ. So Israel begins a nasty cycle of idolatry and revival. And we see this. Here's the graph up on the screen here. And so we see that Israel, uh, you know, in, in last week, Brett talked about this. He says, Israel disobeys, God punishes, Israel turns back, and God delivers. Well, now we see this. We see the anger of God, we see the punishment of God, we see Israel change their mind, and then we see God deliver them. This is now the new cycle that we are in. This is the cycle you will see from Judges. We'll see Israel living lives contrary to God, we see God's anger kindled against them, and we'll see God's punishment upon them, which usually is being uh, under the captivity or under the rule of some other king on earth that's not his own people, and that's not God himself. We'll see Israel get tired of it really quick. Well, not sometimes I say really quick, right? I'm reading sentence by sentence. It feels really quick, but for them, it's sometimes eight years, 18 years, and we'll talk about that, right? But after a while, they change their mind. They cry out to God for deliverance, and ultimately, God delivers them from that situation. But again, there's an arrow that points back to anger because us, like people, often go back to the only, our own junk, right? And so here's the, here's the reality. We're going to look at that word deliverance quite a bit today because that's the place we all yearn and hope to be. The place of of deliverance. We all strive for deliverance. We want to be free of our sin and our bondage. That's what we strive for. Our souls yearn for this. To be in a rightful state with the creator of the universe is where everybody's soul actually desires to be. Now, sometimes we suppress that so much in our own lives that we don't know what that looks like anymore, but the reality is that's where your heart is wired for. Your heart is wired. Everyone's heart on this world is wired and desired for something greater than themselves, and this believing the scriptures and pointing through the Bible points to the work of Jesus. So verse 7 says this, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and they served the Baals and the Yasseroth, which are just two foreign deities. We're not gonna dive into that really today. But we see, not only did they leave in disobedience, but they, they pursued a, a darker path and they actually, like this, this intermarrying with the people of the land that they're supposed to be driving out actually didn't lead them to con- convert other people people to their way but they quickly converted to another way and time out so this is for all the guys and girls in here who are in dating relationships um, you dating someone of a similar faith or actually this faith if you are a believer matters right I, I hate to say that like in that way but that's the reality you will save yourself a lot of grief in your life if you have a common faith in Christ because we've heard so many different stories of two different faiths finding attraction with one another and getting married with one another. But ultimately becomes a struggle and a battle inside the household and becomes divisive and it becomes a, a, a strain. And here's the thing, like, if that's you, like, that, that's your life. And here's the thing, if that's you, you are called to love your spouse, not leave your spouse in light of anything. You are called to them to love them and to pursue Christ's love with them and to them. That's huge. So that's kind of the side note right there, right? But we see this, right? So the people did what was evil on the side of the Lord. They forgot their God, which is crazy, but we say it's crazy. But how often in our own daily lives do we forget our God? For some of us, it just takes hanging out with that other group of friends that don't go to church with us that we really forget our God, right? Let's just be real there, all right? And so we see verse seven, verse nine. The people did what was evil in sight of the Lord. They forgot their God, and then they gave, and Then God gave them over to their sin to be ruled under another. So look at this. It says, therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan-Rishathaim. for that's a really long word. I'm just gonna call him Cushan, okay? Um, the king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cushan. look, Eight years now earlier I said, oh yeah, quickly they come around and change their mind. no eight years. All right? Think about where you were eight years ago. Think about how your walk with the Lord was eight years ago. Think about were you married eight years ago? think about did you have kids eight years ago? Think about how young your kids were eight years ago. all these different things. eight years is the long time. all right? I live by the the days are short or what, what is it? The years are short but the days are long, right? And so that's just the reality of all this. Look, so, but we, we do see this. All right, I'm gonna kind of cruise through this, through this account here. Verse nine, but, I love seeing that in the scriptures because usually it means God going to do something greater, right? So, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now, what do we see that, right? The text doesn't say what the catalyst was for Israel to cry out to God. The scriptures don't really tell us, but we can know that, it, we can be certain it probably wasn't their own doing, but it was God at work in the picture. Unless you're really following the Lord, very, little, very few times does your own sin lead you to God unless you're really pursuing Christ. Your own sin will put you in a place where you're like, yeah, this is how it's supposed to be. This is the world. This is culture. This is whatever. But those people who have a background or an understanding or a confession and belief in the Lord, when you are pulled away from him, your heart is screaming at you. Your heart is yearning for you to return back to what you know and what you trust. And we see that in Israel. So eventually, it doesn't matter. Look, sometimes, I'm just gonna say this too, sometimes it doesn't matter what brings us back to the Lord, the fact that we're going back, right? Right? It doesn't matter if, if whatever, if this happened or that happened or you finally just got tired of it. The fact of the matter is they cried out to the Lord. They went back to the Lord. They started pursuing the Lord and that means for you and for me, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what brought you to that place. It just matters that you're crying out to the Lord for him to deliver you, right? And so don't get wrapped up in that, well, I'm too far gone. I'm, I'm this and I'm that or I have this issue and I can't seem to get rid of this sin pattern in my life. It doesn't matter. Cry out to the Lord. And he will begin to show you and give you deliverance in these things. But we see Israel chose up until this point to live against the knowledge that they had about God. And Israel in 2019 are so not that far removed, right? Our hearts and our minds are often at odds. We want things that that are not of God while trying, on, while trying to hold on to the holiness of God, which is completely crazy, because it's not going to happen. you're going to get torn one direction to the next. And so since Israel didn't live in disobedience, God anger kindled against them, and he gave them up. And so Israel hardened their hearts, and toward God for eight years, they cried out to Him, and what changed them? All these different things. we begin to see this common thing. When they cried out, God responded. right? That's the big thing. But here's one thing we do. What we do know is this. Deliverance requires repentance and obedience. That's one thing we do know. Deliverance requires repentance and obedience. Now, first, here's the question we always have to ask because it gets so convoluted, is what is repentance? Because that's, you can ask the however many people in this room, and you'll get however many answers. What is repentance? Look, it's not guilt. It's not you feeling, feeling bad about it. It's not you going, oh, I feel terrible that I sinned against the Lord, right? It's not that. That's not repentance. It's, it's not strictly saying you're sorry to God. There's plenty of times my kids are being sinful little people, and they walk up, and they go, I'm sorry, and they turn right back and do the exact same thing they just said they're sorry for right? So it's not saying you're sorry. It's, it's not, oh, God, I can't believe I did that. I'm going to try better next time. It's not that. That's not repentance. Because when we start saying, God, I'm so sorry. I'll try better next time. I'll do better. You start making your repentance about you and not about the Lord, right? And trust me, I'll try better next time equates to I'm going to fail again, all right? And so we do this. It's, it's not the pride of self where we say we're going to stop sinning, right? The, the, the repentance is literally this. It is going to a place where we realize that our sin is a front in the heart of God, that our sin is an offense into the heart of God, realizing that it's only going to be him who's going to be able to eradicate that sin from our lives. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about, you know, even talking to a pastor going, God, pastor, I sinned, and this is what happened. and Okay, Great. You need to deal with that. I'm glad you've confessed that to me, but now you need to deal with that. I can't deal with it for you. And so we, we understand that what the repentance is. So look, in order to begin to find deliverance in God, we have to realize that our sin takes us far from God and it's truly an offense to God. And until you get to that place, realizing that your sin is far less about you and other people and far more about you and God, you have already begun to fail that process. And so how is this done? That's the question I was getting. Okay, and you say it's not this, but it is this. How is this done? It's done by getting down on your knees, metaphorically or not, and crying out to the Lord to save you, knowing that it is only him who is going to do it. It is only him who's going to pull you out of the miry clay. It's going to be only him who's going to remold you He's not going to take, and if you're not a believer in Christ, Christ doesn't take your old life and try to make himself around it. He squishes the mold he made of you and makes something brand new. So, so if you're not a believer in Christ, you're like, well, that's, that's you know fun and fairy tales, but I don't know how that's going to be done because my old life looks terrible. Yeah, guess what? Those remnants will still be there, but God is not going to remold your old sinful self. He's going to give you a new heart. And so this is where Israel begins to, to come into play. This is a freeing fact. Often we can struggle to do this because our sin is what's before our eyes and it's not God. And we look at God through the lens of our wickedness and our sin and, and we don't see he's there, but look, church, we see this in the scriptures that they cried out and God responded. They weren't left by themselves to figure it out. God responded, even in the midst of their sin, even in the midst of, look, and the people of Israel did was evil in the sight of the Lord. So Israel was already messing up. Israel was already living a sinful life. And it said, in fact, that God handed them over to their sin because his sin was kindling against them, which if you ever light a campfire, the kindling is the stuff that you put in the fire before the big fire. So it was something already deep inside of you or inside of him that was starting to burn against Israel. And they cried out and that kindling was gone. And he responded to them. Some of you just need to hear that today, that God is not forever angry at you, trying to throw you into a fire. He wants to save you, and he wants you to cry out to him. And God didn't wait, so God gives the the people of Israel Othniel, and we see Othniel actually introduced into the book of of Judges in in chapter one, verse 13, as a warrior, and so we see that Othniel, that God raises up someone who is a pinnacle that Israel wants as a leader, he is a warrior and he's a man of God. We see that clear as day. I'm not going to go back and read that. You can go back and read that for yourself later on. But we see something even greater here. It's not that he just raised up, Othniel, but look, verse 10. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. Catch that again. The spirit of the Lord was upon him. God heard Israel's cry. God raised up a judge, and God gave him his own spirit. That's huge, because this is a an actual separation between the Old Testament and the New Testament, because in the Old Testament, when God was blessing people, or when God was, was, a, was, was sending people in to do his work, guess what? It says the spirit of the Lord was upon him. Now we look at them. We live in the New Testament age, right? We live in and the, like I said earlier, the already but not yet. We, we live in the, Christ has already done the atoning work on the cross. He's already raised from the dead. He already sits at the right hand of the Father, and now we wait for him to return. But when we confess and believe in him, The Bible doesn't tell us that the Spirit of the Lord is upon us, but the Spirit of the Lord is within us. We don't have to wait around for God's Spirit to come upon us. It's within us if you are a believer in Christ. And you can do the same thing in the same way. You can pursue Christ in those same ways of obedience. But here's the second thing we see in this. In the middle of verse 10, he says, He went out to war. He went out to war, and the Lord gave him Cush, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and he prevailed over him. So the land had rest for 40 years. Now, so we know deliverance requires repentance and obedience, but here's the reality, church. Your deliverance is also going to require fighting. Your deliverance requires fighting. Now, in the case of of Israel... It caused Israel to, to restart their unfinished work by driving out the inhabitants from the land, and in this case, they're their actual oppressors of the land. And God gave Israel the task, and it truly became a monument to their disobedience, going, look how big this task is now. And if you actually would have just completed it the first time, been obedient the whole way through, this wouldn't have been this difficult. You wouldn't have the baggage of your sin. You wouldn't have the baggage of marrying the, the, other, the other inhabitants. You wouldn't have the baggage of serving false gods. You would have had me the entire time, and this task would have been so easy. It would have cost you something, but it would have been much easier with me on your side than you trying to do it on your own. And we're going to kind of come back to to that thought here in a minute. But but for Israel, look, obedience costs them potentially their life. You're going out to war. You're going out to war. And and back in the day, it's it's not a drone strike and a surgical attack. It's standing face to face, charging at each other as the the yards and the meters and the kilometers or whatever you guys form you want to use today, right, is closing in and you're running at each other with, with swords, spears, bows, rocks, whatever you can find to kill the enemy. And so you know it's going to cost Israel something and it's going to it might cost them their life on the battlefield, but for us, it's going to cost you your life on a whole different level, most likely. For the reality is if you're pursuing God, your deliverance in Christ, in the, in the picture of Israel, look, requires fighting, for our brothers and sisters across the world, they are losing their life on the battlefield. That's, that's just fact. That's not here. That's not in North America. That's really not even on this side of the world. But it's happening nonetheless. But for, for many of us, It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you much in following Jesus. It means saying no to yourself and and yes to God and no to your ways and yes to his ways and no to your ideas and yes to his ideas and no to your will and yes to his. It is a fight to live the faithful Christian life and please don't let anyone tell you otherwise. It'll cost you something. Following Jesus might cost you family. It might cost you friends. It might cost you status. It might cost you cultural societal things it might cost you and in fact it will cost you if you truly follow Jesus in this culture but a life in Christ is as a surrendered life in which we relinquish our perceived authority we're not the sole authority over our life just like Israel is not the sole authority over their life and the people of this world, though, if they, you can deny the tenets of the Christian faith, but if we truly believe in the word of God, if we truly believe it is the breath of God, is the, the text on the page is the breath of God, then we need to hold to the fact that everyone outside of this is separated from God. And we need to come to that true reality. But also, if you remember, Othniel had the spirit of the Lord upon him, so we also know this, that, that the, the Israel didn't go out to fight on their own, He had the Spirit of God upon him, and like I just said a minute ago, the Spirit of God within us, we don't fight battles on our own. We don't fight without the Spirit of God upon us. We don't fight without the Spirit of God within us. We fight with him. And so look, because of the obedience, because of God's power, because of Othniel leading Israel well, we see peace in the land for 40 years. Peace in the land for 40 years. But then it says... Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. Oh, so close. Now if the story ended there without him dying, and that was kind of it, we'd be like, yeah, Israel followed the Lord, and they, they, they're, they're finding victory, and, and look how great God is. They cried out even in their sinful state, and he responded, and, and yeah, they fought and they won. The end. No, <laughs> you're in chapter 3 of a kind of long book. And so, like I said, we we end up in this cyclical pattern of what's going on. They had, the land had rest for, for 40 years after the death of Othniel, but look, this becomes a pattern of life in Israel They're okay. They do okay when they have a leader, kind of like us as dumb sheep do, right? We're okay when we have a leader, uh, but when no leader's there, they kind of stray away and kind of do their own thing. They're sheep without a shepherd. Hmm, that's New Testament terminology. Ultimately, we know this is pointing to the fact that God's people cannot and will not be satisfied with a leader and victor who will face death. Ultimately, we'll only be satisfied by one who has conquered sin and death. This is pointing to the fact in a cyclical way that all these judges are gonna raise up, that Israel's gonna follow these leaders in obedience, but ultimately they're gonna die and Israel's gonna revert back to their old ways. Guess what? We live in the New Testament and we live with Christ sitting at the right hand of God. And so therefore we know, because we know what Israel didn't know, we know that we have ultimate victory in Christ Jesus. And I know it doesn't feel like that sometimes. I know it doesn't feel that way. I know sometimes we walk into our homes, and we had a great service, and the first thing you're doing is disciplining your child, or getting to an argument with your spouse, or seeing that unwanted email, or remembering you have to pay a bill that you don't have the money for. Ultimately, we look at this life, and we're like, all right, well, God, if this is God, and this is some of the biggest arguments that I've had with some, some atheists, is if God is so good, then why in the world are you suffering? Bart Ehrman, who's an uh, uh, atheist, atheistic New Testament scholar, that's a oxymoron, but an atheistic New Testament scholar out of um, UNC Chapel Hill, he wrote a book called God's Problem, While Suffering Fails to Answer the Biggest Question of the Bible. And so you actually look at this book, I had to read this book in seminary for a, for a uh, problem of evil philosophy class I was reading, and Bart when you read this book, and he talks about how he was once a pastor, how he once held on to the tenets of faith, how he once was fervent for Jesus, but then he began to get confronted by why is there still suffering if God is the ultimate victor? And that is his downfall and his eventual walking away from the Christian faith. Now for us, we, that, that's a hard question. That's a hard thing to wrestle with because we have to believe, like, we have to believe that, that God is, is sovereign and he's ordaining all these things and, but God's allowing the suffering and the evil to happen but he's the ultimate victor and he's already conquered sin and death but yet I live on this earth and I see the sin and death and I see everything that's going on so what in the world? Like, where's the, what's the disparity here? And that's where we just say, I have to believe and trust and have faith. Like, I can can give you all the evidential reasons why suffering exists. I can give you all the philosophical reasons why the suffering exists. But the reality is those things very seldomly answer us when we're in the middle of suffering. And so we have to understand that. But we hold to a God who is the ultimate victor. And we hold to something Israel didn't know, is that all these judges are pointing them to a better Messiah that's to come. And so God sent the trouble. We, we see that he allowed that trouble. He allowed Israel to be in that place. But when they cried out to him, he provided leadership in the spirit of God and he allowed peace and victory. And now Israel returns. Verse 12, here we go. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon the king of Moab against Israel. Because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord, we're back into the same pattern. And this is going to be a very familiar feeling for the next several weeks. Different nuances, but familiar feelings. So now Israel returns to their evil ways and enter one of the most entertainingly graphic accounts in the Bible. So buckle up. (laughs) Because it is the word of God. It is not the word of Andy. So therefore, I am covered. (laughs) All right. (laughs) All right. My elders heard that, we're good? All right, good, Dave gave me a thumbs up, I'm good. And even if he didn't, I told him he did. All right, so look, God gives him over to Eglon, the king of Moab, but Israel finds himself again returning to slavery, which we're going, Israel, you're dumb, and then you look at your own heart and you go, oh, that's me, all right? So Israel found themselves returning to their slavery and the slavery of their sin and their idolatry, not for eight years, but this time for 18 years. Think about it, 26 years overall, over the course of two times of slavery, They're stuck. All the while, God's going, hello. They're stuck. And so the the people, look, uh, so we're going to kind of cruise through this, right? The people Israel did was evil inside of the Lord. Yes, so he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and he went and defeated Israel. Oh, great. They were taken over again. And they took possession of the city of the palms. I'm going to read this very fast, by the way. So if I'm reading too fast, follow with me in the scriptures. Verse 14, and the people of Israel served Egon, the kingdom of Moab, ba- again, for 18 years. They got tired of it. What called them? What, what, what forced them to cry out to God? We don't know, but the reality is this. They got to that place, and like I said earlier, it doesn't matter what brought you to that place. The fact is that you're at that place, okay? And so they're crying out to God, and guess what? Then the people of the Lord cried out to God, and the Lord raised up for them and deliver. Again, God did not wait. God was immediate. They cried out. God's waiting, going, I'm so angry at you, but if you would just listen and cry out to me, what do they do? They cried out, and he came in like the knight on the shining horse. No. Shining night. Shiny knight on the horse. There we go. Sometimes things come out too fast. I need to filter better. All right. But look, it doesn't matter what brought him to that point. But they cried out to God for deliverance, and, and God gave them Ehud or Ehud or however you want to pronounce it. If I'm not pronouncing it in a way that irks you, just raise your hand and I'll try to fix it, okay? Um, but look, here's the thing He raised up the deliverer Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. Look, a left handed man. God. Any fellow lefties in the room? <laughs> Any fellow lefties in the room? Shout out to my lefties. In this culture, being lefty is not a big deal sometimes, but. But we are at least considered somewhat unique. We are few and far between sometimes, all right? The problem is when you get a bunch of lefties in a room, then you realize you're no longer unique. But that's a whole other problem. We are proven to be more creative-minded. We are, some would say, left-hands are proven signs of geniuses. I'll take that. But we also have some downfalls. There's only one pair of left-handed scissors, if any. The desks, when you walk into a classroom, are not that friendly to you. When you write with pencil across a piece of paper, you get this awesome silver lining down the palm of your hand that you have to rub off like this. And then it gets on this hand, and says so a whole other problem. But we look at this, and, and it's kind of tongue-in-cheek about being left-handed, but in this culture, look, the Bible doesn't put details that don't matter. A left-handed man, right, has significance. The right hand, we see this kind of thought throughout the scriptures, we see it. Jesus sits at the right hand of God. God says, I will move them with my mighty right hands. Already I'm going, okay, come on, right? But we see this in the right hand, in, in the scriptures especially, the right hand was a symbol of power and a symbol of ability. And we see that God has raised up this man who's left-handed. And really that Hebrew text there doesn't say a left-handed man. It actually says a man who lacked the ability of his right hand. Right, and so he's assumed in this case to have some sort of disability, whether it's a deformity or disability, whatever. But it allowed him to look unassuming, because in that culture, when someone lacked the ability of the right hand, they often weren't given. Uh, it's very superficial, but they weren't given uh, areas of power, and they were considered just kind of, eh. right. And so we we understand. But let, let's let's walk through this quickly together, because a left-handed man, the most Unassuming of them all is the one that God uses for his glory and to put Israel back into a place of obedience. So let's walk through this, look. So the people of Israel sent a tribute of money by Ehud to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a long sword with two wedges, a cubit in length about 18 inches, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. Again, unassuming because that's not where the weapon of war went. And if you're going to hide something, it's not going to be on your right. It's going to be on your left leg. So you can reach down and grab it. And so it's already unassuming. And Again, in our culture, we're going, that's just strange stuff. Again, but that's how the ancient world thought. And we have to get into the mind of the ancient world when we read these texts many times. And it says, so he made the knife two two edges, 18 inches in length. He bound it under his right thigh. And he says, and he presented the tribute of money to Eglon. And Eglon was a very fat man. Again, not lacking in details in the Bible. All right? When I hear about this, a very fat man, you just be like, oh, maybe he was overweight. But here we get to the rest of the story. You're going to get a picture of either Jabba the Hut versus the 600-pound man. All right? Because you're going to understand that here in a second. And he walks and he goes, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute of money, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back. And the idols near Gilgal, and he said this. I have a secret message for you, O king. And for all of us, anytime someone goes, let me tell you a secret, we go, oh, goody. I get to know something that other people don't. I get to feel special, right? And so what happens is this, the king says silence and kicks everyone out of the room, all of his attendants. So in the room is just Ehud and Eglon. And Ehud came to him and as he's sitting alone, he says this, I have a message from God to you. Which anytime someone starts saying, I have a message from my God to you, you run. If you're in a room alone, and it's in the ancient times, you run, okay? And we see this, says I have a message from God to you. And he rose from his seat and he had reached out with his left hand, took the sword from under his right thigh, and thrust it into this very fat man's belly. Now, disclaimer from here on out, this is the word of God, not the word of me. Okay, so, and the hill went over the blade and the fat closed over the hilt of the blade, so you need to know he's at least 18 inches this way, all right? Probably more because it got stuck, right? And so when Ehud pulled his hand out, the sword was no longer in his hand but stuck into Eglon. It would not come out. And he disemboweled him. I'm not going to read the grotesqueness here that the ESV points out, right? But he disemboweled him, and Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors and ran away. And locked him in there. And then his servants came back. I'm going to paraphrase the rest. His servants came back and they smelt what was disemboweled from him. And they said, oh, he must be using the restroom. Therefore, we're going to leave him to it. They waited, you can see in the Bible, to the point of embarrassment. And they finally went in. They saw their king dead. Ehud had already ran back. And then Ehud got the tribes together and they attacked their captors. Now, that's the paraphrase. You guys feel free to go back and do that later because I'm kind of cranking on time here. But look, in this picture, we must understand deliverance requires repentance and obedience. Deliverance requires fighting. But ultimately, look, deliverance requires your weakness. I know that sounds counterintuitive in this culture. Deliverance requires weakness. How do we know? Because we can see that uh, Ehud's weakness ended up being used for the very thing that would bring God glory, Right? It would be used to the very thing that bring God glory. See, God being, creating a narrative that's forcing Israel to see his strength in their weakness. This is manifested ultimately in the person of Jesus. And we see from Joshua to Judges to 1 Samuel, we see God's glory going from a place of strength to a place of Weakness. We see Joshua and Ehud lead all of the tribes of Israel into battle. But here in the coming weeks, I'm not going to try to step on toes, but in the coming weeks, we see Deborah and Barak, they only lead two tribes into battle. And then the timid Gideon and a, with an army of eventually 300 people. Then Samson, who fights by himself, who has very many character flaws. And then we see David, who's the unlikely choice, use stones in a sling to take down the giant We take down Goliath, and God, again, is creating the narrative. It's not about you. It's about me. God's creating the narrative. Israel, it doesn't matter how strong you are. Outside of me, you can do nothing. God's creating the narrative of, look, it's about my strength in your weakness. It's about my glory through your weakness. It's about what I can do when you are weak. And I think if you look into the New Testament, it says, when we are weak, he is strong. And so we understand that deliverance requires a place of weakness. See, this ultimately points to Jesus. It, he achieved total victory alone for his own people without the helping of his own people. He was weak. He did not count equality a thing of God to be grasped or held onto. And actually that word in the Greek is actually exploited. So he knew he had it the entire time, but he chose not to exploit the fact that he had the power of God within him. And we understand that in the weakness of Jesus, God was showing his strength. And so here's the picture that begins used, right? The real hero in the book, and we can know this, is not the judges. It's not Othniel. It's, it's not Ehud. It's not Shamgar, though he has a sweet one line in the Bible. It's, it's not any of the other judges. It is God. It is God who hears the groans and cries of his people. It is, it is God who gives the merciful ear. It is God who delivers. It is God who allows Israel deliverance from their enemies. Zechariah 4, six says, victories are not won by might or power, but by the spirit of God. And we have to hold on to this. See, this passage here is not about how great or how bad Israel is, but how constantly good our God is. See, we have, a, we have a tendency to be like Israel where we become just expecting for God to forgive our sins when we've had enough of them or when we've had our fill of them and then we cry out to God and he forgives us. This is how a culture of, well, it's okay because I have grace, culture becomes. We willingly enslave ourselves to sin and then we want God's forgiveness. Now, now in him, look at me, now in him we ultimately have forgiveness in Christ. We, we ultimately do have that. We do have forgiveness, but but not because we are anything great, but because our God is great, because our God is faithful. See, Paul even writes in the New Testament that God allows us to, to struggle with sin so that we would know his power and his grace and his mercy, that we would constantly be under the banner of his protection and his place, and not in a storm. God allowing us to struggle with sin keeps us to reminding that we cannot conquer sin on our own. Here's the scary thing, church. Sin has become such a common place within the life of God's people that we rarely find ourselves distraught, broken, weeping, or crushed over our sin. We rationalize our sin, we accept our sin, we make excuses for our sin, we tolerate our sin, and in doing so, we no longer rejoice in salvation. And it becomes more of an adjective rather than a verb for us. This is where Israel has found themselves, in a place to where they, man, they, they, yeah, they cry out to God, but at the same time, guys, look. They're constantly putting themselves back into a cycle where they cry out to God, and they find God, they see God's glory, they see His deliverance, they feel His power, and then they go, ah, and they fall back into the same pattern. Church, so often that's us, but again, we don't have a man as a judge. We have Christ on a throne, and we need to realize this and find a new joy in our salvation. I'm not saying for you to be happy. I think happy is an unfair word in this culture because it fle- it's fleeting so much, but joy where you know where you are at, where your heart is at, where your life is at. This is where Israel found themselves. Here's the last point. We're gonna cruise this really quick. This is... Outside of deliverance, because these are the three things of deliverance that we see in these kind of passages of the judges. But I want to look quickly at the person of Ehud. Because God uses the most likely of people to carry out his purposes. I want to throw it out there that we understand that God used Ehud, and an unlikely judge from an unlikely tribe, to accomplish his task and purposes. These aren't going to be on the screen, but I want you to write down four questions. One, regardless of what weakness you think you have, are you available for God to use you? Outside of whatever weakness you think you have, are you available for God to use you? And your immediate answer is going to be, yes, I am. But when you go home and you stare in the mirror and you really start thinking about your weakness, are you really willing to let God use you? God used someone who was considered kind of a down and out from the culture and society as the leader over Israel who would walk into a place completely unassuming because the rest of the culture is looking at him and his, his disabled right hand going, oh, well, this is interesting, to completing the task that God had for him. That's the first thing. And then that's the only thing about that. That's the only thing I want you to ponder when you look at the picture of Ehud because I think the the narrative surrounding chapter three is much more uh, impactful than just looking at the person of Ehud. But we need to understand that. Are you open to God using you? Here's the second thing. Have you confessed your sin to God and to others that they would hold you accountable? Have you confessed your sin to God and to others that they would hold you accountable? We're real quick to confess our sin to God because no one would ever really know it. But do we confess our sins to one another and kind of complete what the New Testament says about confession? That's Israel crying out to God. But also, they were aware of each other's sin. Second thing, have you started fighting against your sin? Have you started fighting against it? Well, Andy, what's that look like? It looks like this. Getting on your knees, metaphorically or not, and crying out to God to help you fight your sin. Not to even just to help you fight your sin, that's even a bad phrase there, but to fight your sin. To give you the power, give, him, give you the power and his strength to fight your sin. You're not gonna do the victory of the battle on your own. Just know that. Here's the, the last thing. Have you realized that God has given you weakness not to present you as weak, but that you would press into him and into his promises? Have you realized that God has given you weakness not to present yourself as weak, but to press into him and his promises? When we walk out of here today, here in the next few minutes, I'm going to go ahead and invite the worship team to start making their way up here. This is the things that we want to begin to focus on. These are the things that we want to see. This is the picture that Israel begins to give us in the life of Othniel, in the life of Ehud. This is the the kind of, of character that God brings that even in the midst of their deepest, darkest sins, no matter how long, for one period of eight years, for one period of 18 years, that God is still faithful. It comes swooping in to rescue them, to deliver them, to bring them back to him. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we love you. God, we want to give you the glory for today. God, we want to hand our lives over to you. God, we want to make sure that you are known. We want to make sure that you go before us. God, we see in the Old Testament that the spirit of God was upon Othniel and upon Ehud. But God, we know that we have something greater. We have your spirit dwelling within us. God, how freeing is this? How beautiful is this? God, thank you for your son, Jesus, knowing that we don't have to look to man-centered ideologies. We don't have to look to a human leader in expectation of, of deliverance, God, but you have placed these leaders in our lives to point us to you, the ultimate victor, the ultimate Lord, the ultimate God. We love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray.